Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. As I've been starting all my episodes out lately, I just want to say I hope all my listeners are staying healthy, safe, sane, and as financially secure as possible during these times of coronavirus. I know we're deep into quarantine, shelter-in-place, self-isolation, whatever you might be doing to keep yourself and your communities safe and healthy, and I just want to say I so deeply appreciate it, and I hope that my podcast helps bring a little bit of humor and distraction from your routine of, well, quarantine. As always, I have lowered the cost of accessing our bonus material on Patreon. It's only a dollar a month to be able to access things like tangent casts. And if you have any questions about that, feel free to reach out to me on social media or on email. I'll be dropping all that information at the end of the episode, like usual. For this week's episode, I'm going to be talking about Louis XV's wife. And as a bit of a warning, there's going to be a fair bit of Polish in this episode because Louis XV's wife, Marie Leszczynska, was Polish, and if you thought my pronunciation of the French language was bad, well, I'm so sorry. Also, this episode is going to be a little bit on the shorter side because most of the writing about Marie is either in French, which I can read decently well, or in Polish, which I most certainly cannot read, so doing research on her was a little bit tricky. Also, because she was a royal woman in the 1700s, she was almost entirely defined in terms of her husband, so finding out independent information on her, I had to get a little bit creative. Regardless, her study guide includes a dangerous outhouse, a marriage that started out great, but eventually declined, and an enlightened exile. Let's begin. Marie Leszczynska, the future Queen of France, was born June 23, 1703, in Trzebenska, Silesia, in modern-day Poland. At birth, her name was Maria Caroline Sophia Felicia, but yeah, we're just going to call her Marie because that's what everyone else called her. Her parents were Stanislaw, Leszczynska, and Catherine Opolinski. She also had an older sister, Anna, but Anna would die in childhood, and Marie would be her parents' only surviving child. Marie's father was very involved in politics in Poland, which was in the middle of a civil war when Marie was born, because welcome to Poland in the 18th century, I guess. Marie's father had supported the Sobeski princes of Poland, who had been Poland's traditional rulers, but had then lost the throne in 1696 to Augustus I of Saxony, who then became the king of Poland. Even though Marie's father, as well as her grandfather, had been pretty close to the Sobeski princes, the Leszczynska family wasn't particularly high up in the ranks of the larger European nobility or all that wealthy. Then, in 1704, when Marie was only a year old, the king of Sweden, 
Charles XII invaded Poland and made Stanislaw the king because Stanislaw had earlier on supported him when Augustus tried to team up with Russia to invade Sweden and kick Karl XII off the throne. In Poland, nobles had traditionally elected the king, so Karl XII basically forced the Polish nobles to choose Stanislaw, which happened, and suddenly Stanislaw Leszczynski became King Stanislaw I of Poland. However, in 1709, the Swedish army in Poland, who were keeping Stanislaw on the throne, got defeated at the Battle of Poltava, and Stanislaw lost the throne to Augustus I. In response, the entire family had to flee Poland to Sweden, and in the process, they almost leave little Marie behind, and she almost got set on fire in an outhouse, but luckily the family managed to find her before she could, you know, be set on fire and die that way. Due to her father losing the throne, Marie, who was only six years old at the time, would spend most of her childhood growing up in Swedish society. Even though her father no longer had the throne, he would eventually reach the upper levels of Swedish noble society because Stanislaw was really close to the king of Sweden and was given various administrative responsibilities within Sweden. He would end up negotiating with the new king of Poland via King Karl and as a thanks for that was given control of the principality of Zweibrücken in modern day Germany. As Marie got older, she developed the reputation for being an excellent dancer, extremely religious, and very smart. By the time she was an adult, Marie was fluent in Swedish, Italian, Polish, French, German, and Latin, and could also play several instruments, including the piano and the violin. Also, from an early age, she was super into the arts, especially drawing and painting. As a child, she told her tutors that she hated being bored and liked to have multiple distractions in order to keep from being bored, hence her love for the arts and her love for languages. In short, despite the fact that her family were technically exiles and as a result didn't have a ton of resources, and despite the fact that she wasn't traditionally beautiful, Marie Lashenska was not a bad catch on the marriage market. But then, in 1718, when she was only 15 years old, Karl XII of Sweden, the family's benefactor, died, and Stanislaw soon lost control of the Principality of Zweibrücken, as well as what little family land he had left in Poland. Things were looking bad for the Lashenska family. Luckily, Stanislaw and Catherine still had a really good relationship to Karl's widow, the Queen of Sweden, and through her befriended Philippe, the Duke of Orleans, and the son of our old friend Lieselot. By now, Philippe was acting as the regent for the young Louis XV, who I will be discussing very soon, and had a lot of political power within France. Through this connection to Philippe, Stanislaw, Catherine, and their daughter, Marie, soon get a home within the town of Wiesenberg. And on top of this, Philippe 
very generously, offers to pay for all of their living expenses. During her time in Wiesenberg, Marie met a young French army cavalry officer, the Marquis de Cartonvu, who the Duc d'Orléans had sent to Wiesenberg to ensure the safety of Stanislaus' family, because even though they are now in France, the King of Poland, Stanislaus' old rival, Augustus I, would really much like to take the family out in various assassiny ways. The Marquis almost immediately falls in love with Marie and asks Orléans for permission to marry Marie. Thanks to the Marquis's high status, he technically needs royal permission for any marriage that he might enter into. Orléans refused. And then Orléans turned down the next noble who asked permission to marry Marie, the Comte de Charlet, which turned out to be for the best because, as it turned out, Charlet had a tiny murder habit, aka he probably murdered at least five different people and never really got punished for it because that's what happens when you're a member of the French nobility in the 1700s. Then it looked like that Marie maybe was going to marry the Duke de Orleans' own son, but then the Duke married him to someone else. So why did the Duke de Orleans keep preventing marriages to Marie, who after all was just the daughter of this random poor member of the Polish nobility? Well, as it turned out, he may have had a plan for Marie Leszczynska that involved Louis XV, the young king of France. So let's talk a little bit about Louis XV. Louis XV was born on February 15, 1710, and he was the grandson of Louis XIV. Before the time he was two, Louis's grandfather and father died, making him next in line to inherit the throne of France. And yes, his mother also died before he was two, which was very sad, but his mother's death didn't directly impact the French line of succession, so no one at the royal court particularly cared. Then, in September 1715, Louis XIV, juggernaut that he was, died, and suddenly Louis XV was king of France. But because he was only five years old, he needed a regent to serve in his place until he was 13 years old, because apparently once you're 13, you're totally capable of ruling a kingdom all on your own. After quite a bit of political drama behind the scenes, his regent was Philippe, the Duc d'Orléans, the son of Louis XIV's younger brother. But Louis's regency was always going to be full of political drama and various power struggles. Growing up, Louis got the reputation for being a very sweet kid, but being a little bit stupid and super reliant on other people to help him make his decisions. However, by the time he hit his teen years, Louis was known for being extremely good-looking. Like, ridiculously good-looking. By 1720 or so, Louis XV started to enter the larger European royal marriage market because 10 years old is the perfect time to start thinking about who you should get married. Okay, fine. In Louis's case, there was some slightly good reasons to start thinking about who he'd get married. 
As a child, Louis was dealing with some pretty bad health, and he didn't have an heir because he was a child, and his regents wanted him to get married and have children as soon as possible so France wouldn't be plunged into some dramatic succession crisis. Technically, Louis was engaged to Mariana Victoria of Spain, the daughter of the King of Spain, but that engagement fell apart because Mariana was literally an infant and it would be way too long until she could have children and in the interim there was a genuine concern that Louis would die. So his regents started looking at possible other options although for various international political reasons, it was more than a little tricky for them to back out of the engagement to Mariana, but eventually they did. The regents then created a short list of 99 potential women that Louis could marry, and Marie Lashenska was on that short list, although she quickly was removed from that short list because she wasn't from a wealthy or high status enough family. But then, in 1723, the Duc d'Orléans, Louis's original regent, died, and Louis got a new regent, the Duke of Bourbon. And with Bourbon as the new regent, Marie started to slowly move up in the rankings of possible wives for Louis. One thing that really helped Marie move up in this ranking was the fact that she befriended the Comte d'Argesson, the Duke d'Orléans' old head chancellor. The Comte began promoting Marie to various people in power at Versailles, specifically the Duke of Bourbon, who now, as Louis's new regent, had a lot of sway. Basically, Marie got chosen to be Louis's wife because, one, she was Catholic, two, her family didn't have any major skeletons in their closet, mostly because they were so low-ranking, they didn't have the potential to form any drama, and three, her family didn't pose a threat to any of the major parties vying for power within Louis' regency. So, on August 15th, 1725, Marie and Louis got married, via proxy of course, and that's when she started officially going by the name Marie, because it was more French than her original Polish name, Maria. Marie and Louis got married in person on September 5, 1725, at the Chateau de Fontainebleau. At the time of their marriage, Marie was 22 and Louis was 15. So, for possibly the first time in the study guide's history, we have a reverse age gap where our female protagonist is of a healthy marriageable age and it is the man who is creepily underage. At the time of Marie's marriage to Louis, their relationship was extremely controversial. The French nobility was pissed that Louis was marrying someone who technically wasn't a princess. On top of this, the French royal family traditionally only married into a very narrow group of families, and Marie most definitely wasn't 
from one of those families. On top of that, her family wasn't exactly wealthy. They didn't even own their own estate, and the Regent of France had been paying for all their expenses for the last several years. Upset over the marriage led to rumors that Marie had epilepsy and couldn't marry Louis for those physical reasons, and those rumors got so bad that Marie's mother had to step in and be like, look, my daughter is physically healthy and I will prove it to any bitch who says otherwise. Basically, nobles were literally trying to undermine the marriage between Marie and Louis until the last possible second. However, Louis didn't care. He apparently fell head over heels in love with Louis from the moment he saw her at their wedding, which is all very well and good for him, but for Marie, things were a little bit trickier. As soon as she married Louis, she was plunged into the political drama that was part of Louis XV's regency. Basically, the French court was in the middle of a power struggle between the Duke of Bourbon, the Duke of Orleans' son, and the Cardinal de Fleury. And Marie had to balance out all the political intrigue going on in court in things like what ladies of waiting she chose, which caused more than a little bit of stress for Marie because, after all, she had been raised far away from various court intrigues and just didn't know how to play the political game. However, despite not being great at these political dramas, Marie's marriage was fairly successful. After all, she did genuinely like Louis, and the two were very successful at having children, which was what a royal marriage was all about. She and Louis would have 10 children within 10 years, which from a physical standpoint, yikes, I feel so bad for Marie's body. And of those 10 children, seven would survive past childhood, which isn't so shabby. The seven surviving children would be twins, Louise Elizabeth and Anne Henriette, Louis, the Dauphine of France, and then four daughters, Marie Adelaide, Victoire Louise, Sophie Philippine, and Louis Marie. Even though Marie didn't have a ton of experience, well, any experience, playing the political game, she did try to get involved in state politics pretty soon after her marriage to Louis. She attempted to push the Cardinal de Fleury out of power because de Fleury was opposed to the Duke of Bourbon, who had befriended her father and was technically Louis' regent, and was trying to help her father regain the throne of Poland. And after all, her father had told Marie to always stay on Bourbon's good side. And that's exactly what Marie was trying to do. It's just that this little power play of Marie's epically failed, and it all ended with de Fleury doubling down on his power and essentially becoming the chief minister of France. In response to this, Marie had to work extremely hard to get back into the good graces of both Louis, which worked extremely easily because by this point, Louis was still head over heels in love with his wife, and de Fleury, which after some controlling did 
happen from here on out to Fleury and Marie had a fairly cordial, if somewhat tense, relationship. After her failure to successfully push De Fleury out of power happened, Marie basically laid low and stayed out of court drama for the majority of her time as queen. She even would stay out of drama that had to do with her, such as between 1727 and 1729 when Louis' health took a spectacular downturn and de Fleury was pretty openly trying to determine who would be king if Louis died because by then Marie still had only had daughters and was also pretty openly trying to figure out who would be Louis' next wife if Marie died. Marie's power at court was so limited that she didn't even have much of a say over who her various children would marry or how they would be raised, which was pretty shocking by the standards of the time. De Flory basically decided to have her four youngest daughters raised together at an abbey two weeks away from Versailles because it was more economical than raising them at court, and that's what ended up happening despite Marie's objections. Even though Louis and Marie were really close in the early years of their marriage, they didn't spend a ton of time together. Due to his role as king, Louis had to travel a lot and was away from Versailles for about six months of the year, but as far as we know, for these early years of their marriage, even though he was away for about half the time, he was still faithful to Marie. In 1729, Marie's life did have an upswing because that year she gave birth to a son. This was a huge deal because Louis had an heir. No one had to worry about the succession anymore, especially because his health, as we've established, wasn't always the best. Also, by now, Louis had been a little bit worried that maybe Marie couldn't give birth to a son because so far she'd only had three daughters, although publicly Louis had been really nice to Marie about all of their children being girls, but hey, having an official heir was always good. Then, a few years later, in 1733, Louis helped Marie's father regain the throne of Poland because that's what you do for your father-in-law, and it was a really great way to boost Marie's family status within the royal within European royalty, and by extension, boost Louis' status. However, Stanislaw wouldn't remain on the throne of Poland for long. In 1736, he was forced to abdicate the throne yet again. Aunt Marie wasn't actually a huge fan in Louis' choice to reinstate her father onto the Polish throne and basically played no role in the decision. In 1737, Marie gave birth to her final child with Louis, Louis Marie, Louise Marie. The birth of Louise Marie was incredibly difficult for Marie. She almost died in the process and decided that she was done having children. She'd had 10, she was over the entire thing, and she told Louis that as much as she loved him, she was done having sex with him. Thank you very much. And in response to this, Louis decided to start taking on mistresses and became a pretty major womanizer. I'll be doing several episodes 
about his various mistresses. And as it turned out, much like his great-grandpa, Louis XIV, Louis XV had a bad habit of promoting his various mistresses into very high-ranking positions at court. And shockingly, Marie wasn't exactly a fan of that. She did not get along great with Louis's various mistresses. The only mistress who Marie could vaguely tolerate was Louis's famous mistress, Madame de Pompadour, and that was only because Madame de Pompadour was extremely respectful to Marie. But even then, the relationship with Madame de Pompadour is going to be extremely one-sided because Madame de Pompadour was going to have much more sway over foreign and domestic affairs than Marie ever was going to have. Even though Marie is having to deal with her husband and his circle of not-so-subtle mistresses, her life kind of starts looking up. In 1743, her old rival, the Cardinal de Fleury, dies, which means that Louis is finally ruling independently. He doesn't have any really strong ministers telling him what to do, which potentially would be a great moment for Marie to start intervening and getting involved in politics. But like we established, she chooses not to be involved in politics, so her life doesn't change all that much. But then, in 1747, she gets Voltaire, yes, that Voltaire, banished from the French court. Basically, Marie loved to gamble, like so many other members of the French nobility. At one game, she was playing against Voltaire's lover, Emily de Châtelet, and Emily lost a ton of money. Voltaire told Emily, in English, in front of Marie, that she had been cheated, basically implying that Marie cheated at cards, which was a massive insult. And then, not long after, Voltaire wrote a poem about the sexual relationship between Louis XV and Madame de Pompadour, which was another slap in the face to Marie. After this, Marie insisted that Voltaire leave the court and had enough sway that even though she was no longer sleeping with her husband, Voltaire was forced out of Versailles for several years. While I don't love pushing major members of the Enlightenment out of court because of things they said, go freedom of speech, I do love the pettiness that that involved. As queen, one of Marie's major goals was to be totally scandal-free and to keep the royal family out of scandal as much as possible, which did make everyone at court, as well as most modern historians, see Marie as being pretty boring. And as far as we know, Marie was completely faithful to Louis and didn't have any affairs. Beyond her stellar reputation in matters of the bedchamber, Marie was also known for being a major patron of the arts and architecture. She did some major renovations to the royal apartments in Versailles and hired some of the most famous artists of the time to do the decorations. For example, she had Francois 
Boucher, who is famous for his Rococo and vaguely pornographic paintings of girls on swings, to do the paintings in the entry of her and Louis' apartments. She also created some pretty fabulous secret private apartments behind her official apartments so she could have a little bit of privacy each day, which is an idea I love. In addition to her work designing the renovations at Versailles, Marie was a painter in her own right. She worked closely with two artists, Etienne Giraud and Jean-Baptiste Audry, in working on her own skills. In addition to her own work, she was a major patron of the arts. She particularly liked landscapes and any art that had to do with China, so she really promoted Chinese-style art in France throughout the 18th century. Marie's favorite artist was Jean-Marc Natier, who did a ton of portraits of her and the royal family, and she also held a concert at Versailles that a young Mozart played at and apparently adored him. Outside of the court, Marie had a reputation for being extremely generous and just giving out money to locals whenever she left the palace. This made her the member of the royal family that was probably the most popular with the average French citizen, which really is saying something because by the mid-1700s, the French royal family wasn't exactly popular. And then we can also look at the outcomes of her surviving children, which is always a great way to track a woman's success in 18th century Europe. Her oldest daughter, Louise Elizabeth married the youngest brother of the King of Spain and became the Duchess of Parma. And her only surviving son, Louis, the Dauphin of France, married Marie Theresa, the daughter of the King of Spain, and then married Maria Josepha, the daughter of Saxony, which deeply annoyed Marie because her family famously hadn't gotten along great with the rulers of Saxony, but Marie didn't exactly have a say in the matter. However, Marie's five other daughters didn't marry because Louis XV was famously close to his children and didn't want them to leave the court. Meanwhile, Marie was very close to her son, the Dauphin, and the group at court that he created. While Marie herself didn't have a ton of direct political influence at court, she did have some influence over her son, especially during the chunk of time that her son was too young to rule independently. So if Louis XV had died, she would have been regent. While this didn't happen, there were murmurs at court that Marie was really pushing her son to promote a more Catholic interest at the French court. However, that clearly never happened because Marie died on June 24th, 1768 in Versailles at the age of 65 before her husband did. At the time of her death, Marie had been serving as queen for 43 years, which meant that she was the longest serving queen in French history. Like every other member of the French royal family, her body was buried at the Basilica of Saint-Denis in Paris, except for her heart, which was buried in a chapel in Lorraine for some reason. In addition to being the longest serving queen of France, 
Marie was also the grandmother to Louis the Sixteenth, Louis the Eighteenth, and Charles the Tenth of France, and her other descendants include the current royal family, which isn't too shabby for a random member of the Polish nobility that no one knew about when she was born. So, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's quickly recap the life of Marie Leszczynska, Queen of France. Marie was born in 1703 in modern-day Poland. A year after her birth, her father, who was a middling Polish nobleman who was very involved in Polish politics, managed to become King of Poland through the support of the King of Sweden. However, when Marie was six, her father was pushed off of the throne of Poland and the family had to flee to Sweden. In Sweden, her father became fairly high-ranking within the Swedish nobility due to his friendship with the King of Sweden. However, when Marie was 15, the King of Sweden died, her father lost what status he had in Sweden, and the entire family moved to France, where they quickly befriended the regent of Louis XV. As Marie grew up, she got a reputation for being very sweet, very intelligent, but not exactly beautiful. However, despite her lack of beauty and her lack of money, she was placed on the 99-name shortlist for possible wives for Louis XV, who was only in his teens but needed to get married stat due to his ill health. Eventually, thanks to the fact that Marie had befriended Louis' regent and the fact that she was Catholic, and not politically controversial, in 1725, Marie was chosen to marry Louis. This choice of marriage partner was extremely controversial within France, but by August 1725, Marie and Louis were married, and it truly was love at first sight. Louis was head over heels in love with his new bride, even though she was seven years older than he was. And the marriage started out strong. The two had ten children in ten years, seven of whom would survive to adulthood. As Queen of France, Marie, frankly, was over her head. She had no idea how to play the game of politics that being in the French court required. Her first attempt to get involved in state affairs completely failed when she attempted to push out the powerful Cardinal de Fleury to help out her friend, the Duke of Bourbon. After this failure, Marie wouldn't ever try to get involved in political drama again. Her early years at court went really well. Her husband loved her. She was pushing out those babies, although she would only have a single son who would survive to adulthood. But then, in 1737, Marie almost died giving birth to her daughter, Louise Marie, and she decided that she was done having sex with her husband. Louis didn't love this idea and began taking on a series of mistresses pretty publicly. Marie obviously wasn't thrilled by this, and the once-loving relationship between the husband and wife soon soured. After this, Marie would lay fairly low at court. She got a reputation for being really generous to the local peasants and being a fabulous patron to the arts, but sadly, 
but sadly not much else until her death on June 24th, 1768, at which point she had been queen consort in France for over 40 years, making her the longest serving queen in French history. So that is Marie Leshenska. She really did start from the bottom and made it to the top, but sadly her life as queen wasn't necessarily the most exciting. Most of my research for today's episode came from Scott Mel's article for Unofficial Royalty, John Rogester's essay in the book Queenship in Europe, and Eric Reed Buckley's book A Lily of Old France, Marie Leshenska, Queen of France, and the Court of Louis XIV. As always, for a full list of sources and relevant images, you can visit the website at Sad Girl Study Guides. Next week, I will be talking about the scandalous Daniil sisters. As always, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, you can become a patron at patreon.com, and patrons get access to a lot of cool things, like the bi-monthly tangent casts, where I talk about people, places, or things that don't quite fit into a normal-length study guide. Recent topics have included the affairs of the poison and the tragic life of Henrietta Anne. As always, you can reach me on social media, on Twitter at sadgirlstudypod, or on Instagram at sadgirlstudy. The best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and Spotify, and let me know how I'm doing. Read a review, or else I'll be sad. Bye!